Each year, around one in five New Zealanders experiences mental illness or significant mental distress. We have persistently high suicide rates, particularly among young people and Māori. The cost of the burden of serious mental illness, including addiction, is an estimated $12 billion, or 5% of the country's GDP. Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan. The government maintains it's doing its best to respond to growing pressure on mental health services as new figures show a massive crisis in referrals at many hospitals, a huge increase. I guess what's most galling for me is hearing the government's oft-used cliché, we're in conversation, we're talking, is essentially what he's saying when what struggling families in the mental health sector so desperately need is doing. Back in 2019, New Zealand's government unveiled what it called its well-being budget, which included... A record $1.9 billion in total over the next five years for mental health. But two years on, a newsroom investigation into the state of inpatient units for people with the most significant mental health needs has revealed a sector staggering along on tired legs. Today on The Detail, Christchurch-based journalist Oliver Lewis on his five-part series examining the perilous state of mental health units in New Zealand. How have we allowed this crucial infrastructure to degrade to the point of some buildings' roofs caving in? How much will it cost to bring it back up to speed? And is there a danger that in pumping more resource into this sector, we're investing in a really fancy ambulance at the bottom of the cliff? Oliver Lewis, hello, welcome to The Detail. Emil, good to be with you. Um, nice to speak to a former journalism school colleague. Indeed, yes. Um, let's talk about some establishing stuff first, get a reasonable understanding of what we're sort of talking about here. So we're talking about, what, mental health units? Is that how we're going to describe them here? In the broader sense, yes. So I set out to look at kind of three subcategories of that. So there's mental health units, there's forensic mental health units, which are typically for people who've got a connection to the criminal justice system. And then there's intellectual disability psychiatric units, so secure units for people with an intellectual disability and potentially also a mental health disorder. But simply, yes, mental health units is the, is the easiest kind of way to, to think of it. What are mental health units? Like, what function are they meant to serve? What services do they provide? So there is a little bit of disagreement about this. One researcher I spoke to, Dr. Gabriel Jenkin, did a very extensive study of units, spent about four years looking into them. And she found, after interviewing a number of staff and service users, there was a bit of disagreement about the purpose of these places. So staff primarily thought that the purpose was to provide a safe place for someone in crisis. And so what that looks like is someone may be psychotic, they may be suicidal, and they need to be put in a secure facility where they can be treated and stabilised using medication primarily. On the other hand, you've got service users, many of whom said that they wanted a kind of quiet therapeutic place they could go for respite from mental distress. Security was important too, but there was more of a rehabilitation or recovery role that they wanted to see from inpatient units, which, given the demands on them and the pressure, they are really just more about stabilising acutely unwell people and getting them back out into the community. There's a couple of different ways you can be admitted. Uh, primarily, actually, most people are admitted under the Mental Health Act, so that's a compulsory care mechanism uh, under the Act. And so that's concerned relatives or other groups or people who think this person is a risk to themselves or others and they should be admitted to a unit. But you've also have got voluntary admissions where people are really 
unwell and they might go to the emergency department, be assessed there, and it's thought that they are bad enough to warrant a stay in an inpatient unit to recover or to be stabilised. We are talking about the most acutely unwell people. So if you think about mental health as a spectrum, there's only, I think it was about 9,500 people last year who got some form of inpatient care. So that's a very, very small number in the overall scheme of the New Zealand health system. So these people are acutely unwell. They're very, very unwell when they're admitted. Who is there at a mental health facility, at mm. a mental health unit? Who, who provides the treatment? Typically, you've got your frontline mental health nurses. They'd be the most prevalent staffing group in a unit. And then you also have people called occupational therapists who work with service users uh, and provide them some form of meaningful activities, so art therapy or gardening, stuff like that. And then the other groups at the kind of clinical senior doctor level, so you've got your psychiatrist. They are the people prescribing treatment and prescribing medication. And occasionally, if you've got a well-resourced unit, you'll have um, psychologists uh, attached to the unit as well, although that was a lot rarer in the New Zealand experience. Previously, people who were severely mentally unwell were treated at big institutional facilities, often in semi-rural areas, places like Sunnyside Hospital or Cherry Farm Psychiatric Hospital. But a process of deinstitutionalisation, which built up momentum throughout the 90s, moved away from this practice and more towards inpatient care, smaller community-based facilities. There are about 50 of these units scattered around the country, 24 of which were inspected in a health sector stock take in 2019. That stock take revealed many of these facilities have degraded over the past couple of decades. Oliver Lewis spoke to a woman who stayed at one of several units at Christchurch's Hillmorton Hospital. It's old, I think it was remodelled in 2000, but it's an existing really old brick villa. And so she's talking about things like um, the heating, for instance, in her room. There was no heating, it was cold, nurses had to provide her with blankets. Talking about kind of decrepit or damaged furniture in the wards. It felt to her more like a prison or a holding cell than it did a place of healing. So all in all, the experience for her and the environment at Helmorton was she found it to be very detrimental. I think all of them were described as, uh, you know, the environment is poorly maintained and is run down. That's what inspectors who looked at three of the units said of all of them. But on rats and mice, that was actually something that I thought was really um, stark. Uh, It was in a number of units around the country, not just Helmorton, where there were these vermin issues. And, I mean, some of it reads like Dickensian poetry. Like there was one line from the inspectors where they were describing a unit, I think, and um, there there is vermin and mousetraps are used, full stop, the building leaks. And I read that and thought, okay, that's uh, perhaps not what you'd want if you were acutely unwell. What other sorts of things are we seeing in the general sort of state of these of these buildings? One of the big ones is they aren't weather tight anymore. Like they're starting they're starting to leak, mm-hmm. and you start to get damp patches. You get rotting within the building. I mean, one of the ones in Rotorua, and this has apparently been fixed to the credit of the DHB. It's what led, they told me at least was there was a, a fungal growth under the kitchen that led to this insect infestation in the in the building. <laughs> And I mean, that to me is unacceptable. Like, you're meant to be providing health care. And as I think this other young woman I spoke to who had received inpatient care said, there does seem to be a marked difference between physical health care facilities and the ones used for mental health patients. Mm. And you kind of wonder why that is. 
There was a, and you've mentioned this earlier, a, mm. um, an assessment of health infrastructure in 2019, and this included assessments of about half the mental health inpatient units in the country. What were the results mm. of that report? Yeah, so that report was fascinating. I want to just quickly thank the former health minister, David Clark. He got a lot of derision for the Mantabuck ride during COVID. Health minister David Clark has offered to resign after admitting two more breaches of the Level 4 lockdown. But he pushed this. And prior to 2019, it's amazing to me, it's flabbergasting that we didn't have this nationwide assessment happening of our hospital infrastructure. You had these 20 DHBs kind of operating as they saw fit and under very kind of capital-constrained environments so they couldn't replace these things. But we had no idea of how bad some of these, these hospitals were in the general state. So as for the mental health units, um, yeah, there were 24 assessed, as you said, and against these kind of nine design criteria that they were using to assess them, uh, four were ranked very poor, the worst grade. Eleven were poor. Uh, there were a few that were average, and I, I think only three, including Tiahomai and Auckland, the new build, were, were considered good. So very poor and poor grades. Both, both indicated that um, repair or renewal was, was required. And that's a lot of buildings. It's like 15 of the 24 assessed. It's, it's amazing that we've had, we've allowed these facilities to get so run down that you then have this kind of infrastructure deficit and this big backlog of buildings that need immediate or very, very urgent kind of um, repair or renewal. Waikato Hospital's mental health unit is bursting at its seams. Sometimes it's so overfilled uh, with patients they have to sleep on mattresses in offices or TV rooms. Are there sort of like international benchmarks for how at capacity mental health units should be? Yeah, so I was aware of a figure of 85% was the optimum capacity, and I, I put that to the Ministry of Health and asked them if that was correct. They came back and said, yes, by international best practice, 85% capacity or 85% full is where you should aim to kind of keep occupancy rates. And that means that there's some kind of free beds. And how does New Zealand measure up to that 85% benchmark? Uh, not particularly well. So with the OAAs I sent to DHBs, I asked each of them for the occupancy levels or rates for their respective mental health facilities. And 13 of the 18 that responded, and that's all of them, like the three Wellington uh, DHBs responded as a collective, mm. which is why there isn't 20. Uh, 13 said that they had at least one month last year, many had multiple months, where their average occupancy for the month was 100% or more of their funded capacity. And like you see ombudsman inspectors' reports where they'll go in and a unit's at 109% capacity. So we're talking about quite overrun units. And typically they do have extra beds beyond the number that are funded. But once you get too many people in a ward, you start to have to put them in mattresses on in really inappropriate places, like seclusion rooms, which are these really bleak, austere, stark places. Or you put them in interview rooms or whanau rooms or <laughs> consulting yeah. rooms. The idea that someone might be placed into a seclusion room because the facility is at total um, or more than 100% occupancy, that sounds really bad, and it is clearly really mm. bad as well. But I suppose it's also a reflection on the very difficult decisions that particularly nurses have to make and that if someone turns up on your doorstep and they really need help and you're at 105% occupancy, like, what do you do? You either put them in a seclusion room or you turn them away and you really don't want to turn them away, right? That's right. And so I, I talked to the uh, this one called Helen Garrick, who was the um, chair of the mental health, sec uh, mental health nurses section of the NZ No, the union. And her point was very simple, that people were feeding back to her that they were constantly having to, to make these 
kind of ju- it's a juggling act. It's a juggling act with like some really big moral implications. Like if someone comes to your unit and they are suicidal and you're full and you turn them away, there's a real kind of potential for some very adverse consequences. Mm. So often staff make the very difficult decision to admit people on the basis that a mattress in an interview room or seclusion room is still better than the alternative, that person being held in the ED or a police station or just in the community. So I do feel for nurses and staff, I think they've got a very, very difficult job. And by all accounts, most staff tend to provide really, really good care and work above and beyond in these places. The third piece that you wrote for Newsroom, Mm. this sort of gets into the idea, I suppose, of what these mental health units are supposed to do. And one recurring theme that uh, you come across in in speaking to people in this area is the idea of over-reliance on on medication. Tell me a bit about this issue. Well, this is going back to the conversations I had with Dr. Gabrielle Jenkins, a sociologist at the um, University of Otago, Wellington. So she interviewed about 42 service users across four units as part of her research. And that was one of the observations she made during these interviews that everyone she spoke with seemed to be medicated or heavily medicated. And a lot of service users expressed real concern to her that they there wasn't really alternatives, that they really wanted access to talking therapies, to exercise, to gyms, to more activities. They felt really bored. And so there was a real lack of alternatives beyond the biomedical kind of psychiatry model. And just to be really clear, like it, almost everyone I spoke to, again, if they had been prescribed medication, it did help. It's not about diminishing the role of medication that's always, I think, going to be necessary. It's more about do you also, on top of that, provide psychological support? And I think most people, including the College of Psychologists, believe very strongly that, yes, you should be doing that on top of medication. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is this is getting into an interesting area, isn't it? And that if you're providing acute mental health help, how much can we realistically expect from from a centre like that? I hear you talking about things like musical therapy and, and talking therapy, and I think some some um, of these units do things like baking classes and, and so on and so forth, which really does sound great. But should that be the expectation of acute care? I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Yeah. It's a very interesting question, and that comes back to this real tension, which I think is at the heart of kind of official decision-making around mental health in New Zealand. So we have this real focus on transformation and transforming services and shifting the place of care more into the community, really kind of centering community health care as as the the gold standard and what should be achieved. Mm. And so I don't disagree with that. I think that's a, a good direction to be taking, but it doesn't take away from the fact that you still will require some degree or some number of inpatient facilities for people people that are acutely unwell. And so with resourcing, it comes down to a matter of priorities. Like as a government, there's many, many competing demands on capital infrastructure and health. It's, mm. There's a huge, huge infrastructure deficit there and it's going to take a long time to kind of bring our health facilities overall up to standard. Do you spend a lot of that money on mental health facilities? I don't know. But what I do know is that the ones that I've reported on and that are particularly bad do urgently need to be addressed. And there's a really good example, like Te Aho Mai in Auckland. Te Aho Mai is a brand new facility at Auckland's Middlemore Hospital, which opened last year. The previous facility was really, by all accounts, at its extreme end of life. It was in a state of disrepair. Two weeks after they moved 
into the new building, the first stage of the new building, the roof of the old building, part of that collapsed due to heavy rain. Like it was at its extreme end of life. And I just don't really understand why we allow ourselves to get into that position where our infrastructure gets so badly run down, despite knowing it has terrible effects on people receiving care, before we do anything to fix these issues. Mm. Which is what I wanted my series to highlight, like the general kind of state of infrastructure and the fact that there is a lot of work required to really make improvements? Well, I mean, I guess one of the reasons for that is that Te Mai, I think, costs 65 million bucks. And <laughs> that's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money, isn't it? And, I mean, as you pointed out before, you know, if you, if you are the one who is making the decision as to how to allocate the money that the government has to spend, then you have some pretty tricky decisions, especially when 15 of the 24 buildings that you assessed <laughs> are in need of urgent yeah. urgent maintenance or repair. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, like, with to give you some sense of scale... So since 2015-16 to 2019-20, those kind of budget years, it's been up 470 million has been allocated for either refurbishing or replacing mental health facilities. And a lot of the ones I reported on that were in the worst condition, there are plans to replace those. It's just, it's going to take time. It's going to take a few years um, in a lot of cases. $470 million, uh, it may sound like a lot, but the Christchurch Hospital Hagley building in Christchurch, for instance, cost $520 million. So that's one large hospital building, admittedly the most I think we've ever spent on hospital hospital building before the Dunedin redevelopment. But that one project is more than has been allocated on mental health um, facilities in the last kind of five years. I suppose, you know, the ruthlessly, nakedly pragmatic view of this could be if these services are only used by fewer than 10,000 people a year and yet you go through the sums, I mean, $30 million for Hutt Valley DHB to replace its inpatient unit. That's right. Um, $18 million for the Tide R for T, $25 million for Lakes DHB, uh, mm. $81 million for Canterbury DHB. You know, I, I mean, there's some poor bugger in the health industry who's crunching the sums on this and, and has to make a recommendation, you know, is the uptake of these going to justify the investment? That's right. I, I don't envy that calculated decision making yeah. you're you're weighing up kind of competing worst outcomes effectively like if you put money into one area in health then you're taking it away from another others would disagree with that by the way there's economists who think that we should be spending a lot more on health in general but um the real moral dilemma though i think is that there is an expected level of care in places of detention and that's effectively for most people what these are and it doesn't seem acceptable that if people are being placed against their will in facilities like this, that they are in such a poor condition. And as the ombudsman, I think, actually pointed out when I spoke with them, there are, actually, there are solutions beyond just huge investment in new facilities. So one woman I spoke to had a very interesting story, had had experiences at, as an inpatient at Hill Morton in Christchurch and found the environment cold, stark, unfriendly, really hard to get help in. And then she had this uh, alternative admission to what the CDHB calls an acute alternative service. And what that means is they contracted out an NGO to refit this beautiful wooden villa in the community mm. into a really kind of therapeutic, safe, welcoming space. And the one I spoke to said it was like night and day. Like the the place at Hamilton was institutional. It was dark. It was really kind of run down. Whereas the place she went to, uh, it's called Te Marama in Christchurch, it, she described it as like walking into a magazine and said it, there was this enormous sense of relief. And so that is an alternative. Like instead of focusing ruthlessly on just these really kind of secure inpatient facilities, you could start to think what community alternatives can we provide and how many people can we divert away from these existing places into kind of better, more homely facilities in the community? 
one issue which I found really fascinating, which um, wasn't perhaps as well explored in my pieces, but was the uh, the impact of the housing crisis on the occupancy levels in some of these these units. Mm-hmm. So a lot of DHPs have this policy where they won't discharge people to homelessness, and that makes perfect sense. But what happens as a result is because there's a lack of supported housing in the community and a lack of kind of, they call them sub-acute facilities for people with mental health issues. There's a lack of those, and it means that people end up staying in inpatient units and effectively become live-in patients. Um, so one person, for instance, in 2019 when the ombudsman went to visit this Auckland inpatient unit had been there for about 17 months. Mm. Uh, it was about 13 people that had been there for kind of you know protracted, really prolonged periods of time. This one patient, he's referred to as patient A in all these ombudsman reports dating back a few years. He is an intellectually disabled man with some really complex behaviours and he has been cared for since 2004, so 17 years ago, in a forensic mental health unit at Hilmorden Hospital in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. And intellectual disabled disabled people should not be in regular forensic mental health facilities. That's people that have committed crimes or have contact with the criminal justice system. The only reason he's there is because it's it's a secure place and it's he can be contained or managed in that space easier than another intellectual disability ward. But you know, district inspectors and the ombudsman over the last 15 years, 12 years, have kind of repeatedly flagged concerns that his rights are being breached. And despite this uh, kind of public outcry or shaming for 17 years he's lived in this place at one point he was living in a seclusion room for between 15 to 16 hours a day and so you you get these really kind of i wouldn't call them horror stories but you get these really sad stories where because of a lack of proper infrastructure we're actively failing some of new zealand's most vulnerable people and i i just think more people should be concerned by that That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Oliver Lewis. Matewa. <laughs>